Dear Father, please be with us just now as we talk about the book of Numbers. Um, again, in a very difficult, dark book, but please help us to see you the light. Amen. Well, I keep warning you guys, boy, this is a dark book. This is a difficult book. And um, it seems like looking over Numbers, the book of Numbers here the last week, boy, this one is a bad book. I mean, just difficult, hard, hard stories. Um, I thought Judges was the worst book. But maybe when I get to Judges, I'll change my mind again. But Numbers is pretty bad as well. And uh, what I wanted to show you here uh, were a few Mark Twain quotes. Okay, but just listen to these. And uh, Mark Twain didn't have a hard time understanding these stories. And this is what led him to uh, reject God. Listen to what Mark Twain said. It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts that I do understand. And the parts he understood uh, were horrifying. Now listen to this one. The two testaments are interesting. Each in its own way, the old one gives us a picture of these people's deity as he was before he got religion. The other one gives us a picture of him as he appeared afterward. God of the Old Testament before religion, uh, God of the New Testament after religion. And this one, our Bible reveals to us the character of our God. I like how that one starts, with minute and remorseless exactness. It is perhaps the most damnatory biography that exists in print anywhere. It makes Nero an angel of light and leading by contrast. So there's Mark Twain. And uh, then he said, if there is a God, he's a malign thug. Here's what I found interesting, though, in reading about Mr. Twain. He said, God so atrocious in the Old Testament, so attractive in the New. The Jekyll and Hyde of sacred romance. It's interesting he found the God of the New Testament attractive. Um, I'd love to have Mark Twain going through a book-by-book Bible study. Each and every story, let's talk about it. But no chance of that. And then he said, there's only been one Christian. They caught him and crucified him early. And that would be a pretty perceptive quote there. So the evidence that Mark Twain had for coming to his view of God is found in many books in the Old Testament, but a lot of the evidence evidence is here in the book of Numbers. So, hey, all right, thank you. We have slides. They don't advance, Gary. Okay, I can use the cursor, all right. There we go. So let's remember that the central key element here, we have to keep Jesus in mind as we go through these stories, of course. He is the light that opens up our minds to the Old Testament. This is eternal life to know you. It is all about a knowledge of God. Intimacy, relationship, Christ is the heart, the center is everything. And uh, this verse, just so important. On earth I have given you glory by finishing the work, the mission you gave me to do. And he went on to say what his mission was. I made your name known. I made your character known. Okay, the central issue is the character of God. And this is not just to come to the conclusion, uh, well, you know, God is just a, a, a nice old chap. And if we all come to the conclusion that he's that way, then that's all there is to it. No, there are, everything branches out from understanding that God is love personified. Uh, teachings about eternal torment and so on. It is the light from what God is like that opens our minds to, I think, understanding things like that perhaps in a different way. So we've spent a long time at Mount Sinai and the words here I think fit for us. You've stayed long enough at this mountain. Let's move on. Okay, so we're going to leave Mount Sinai and in Numbers 10, you know, the opening of Numbers is a census. 
conclusion of the book of Numbers is another census. And so on the 12th, 20th day of the second month in the second year after the people left Egypt, the cloud over the tent of the Lord's presence lifted and the Israelites started on their journey out of the Sinai desert. So took them, uh, you know, this is all a pretty short period of time over many chapters. Didn't take them that long to walk out to Sinai. Um, and then they spent 11 months or so there at Mount Sinai and then they move on. It wouldn't have taken them that long to get into the land of Canaan. And just as an overview, I found this interesting. Here there's a census, about 603,000 people, men over the age of 25. So, I don't know, 2 million or so people that went out. That's at the beginning of Numbers. And then we have another census at the end of Numbers, almost virtually identical. But, of course, what's so sad is that all the men over 25 were dead when they arrived in the Promised Land, except for, um, here in Numbers 26, except for Joshua and Caleb. So what we're going to read about is a lot of complaining and trouble. The whole book of Numbers is irritation, agitation, complaining, and um, even Moses, even Aaron and Miriam. It's just a complaining book. And then the 12 uh, spies, the 40 years wandering, you know, is, is a relative sense. That should occupy many books of the Bible. But it's, it's all compacted in a fairly short uh, description. Two of the stories we'll talk about, one today, Korah's Rebellion, and then uh, Moses striking the rock. We'll talk about that next time when we go through Deuteronomy. And then they come closer to the promised land, Balaam, and um, then we have a census. So let's just, we're going to hit representative features here. First of this complaining. The people say there's nothing to eat all, at all, nothing but this manna day after day. And Moses here, he's just had enough of it. Listen to his response. Moses heard all the people complaining as they stood around in groups at the entrances of their tents. He was distressed because the Lord had become angry with them. And he said to the Lord, why have you treated me so badly? Why are you so displeased with me? Why have you given me the responsibility for all these people? I didn't create them or bring them to birth. Why should you ask me to act like a nurse and carry them in my arms like babies all the way to the land you promised their ancestors? Does Moses know God like a friend or what? I mean, to be that honest... Well, he goes on. Where could I get enough meat for all these people? They keep whining and asking for meat. I can't be responsible for all these people by myself. It's too much for me. If you're going to treat me like this, have pity on me and kill me so that I won't have to endure your cruelty any longer. He's completely fed up. God responds. Now tell the people, purify yourselves for tomorrow so you will have meat to eat. The Lord has heard your whining and saying that you wished you had some meat and that you were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will have to eat it. You will have to eat it not just for one or two days or five or 10 or even 20, but for a whole month. That might convert some of us to vegetarianism. But anyway, uh, until it comes out of your ears, until you are sick of it, this will happen because you rejected the Lord who is here among you and have complained to him that you never should have left Egypt. So what follows? Moses, thanks a lot, God. Now listen, he said to the Lord, here I am leading 600,000 people and you say that you will give them enough meat for a month? Could enough cattle and sheep be killed to satisfy them? Are all the fish in the sea enough for them? And God says, is there a limit to my power? You will soon see whether what I have said will happen or not. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He assembled 70 of the leaders and placed them around the tent. This is what happened. Suddenly, the Lord sent a wind that brought quails from the sea, flying three 
feet above the ground. They settled on the camp and all around it for miles and miles in every direction. So all that day, all night, and all the next day, the people worked catching quails. No one gathered less than 50 bushels, which I gather is a lot of quails. They spread them out to dry all over the camp. Can you imagine that? They smelled really good, huh? And while there was still plenty of meat for them to eat, and here we have a difficult section, the Lord became angry with the people and caused an epidemic to break out among them. And so many people died. Now, I hope all of you were here recently when we went through the many, many examples in the Bible of God described as doing something which he instead allowed to occur. Um, I would lump this in with those many other examples. Now, many of those cases were given an answer. I mean, God caused David to give a census, which was a bad idea. Well, we read the other account later on. Satan tempted David to give the census. Uh, remember, in, even within the Ten Commandments, the Lord says he punishes to the third and fourth generation for the sins of the parents. We read in Ezekiel, God says very clearly, I don't punish the children for the sins of the parents. Uh, we'll, we'll give more and more examples. I mean, the, the uh, captivity, Babylonian captivity. God said, I myself will burn down the city. And then we just read on the Babylonians did it. Uh, do you think this was a real good uh, health situation here with all these birds lying around? And for a month, I mean, they're not uh, putting these in Ziploc uh, storage bags and in freezers, right? And uh, eating the quail for such a long period of time. So again, using the whole rest of the Bible... I feel comfortable saying, boy, this was a mess. These people are just eating on quail for 30 days, and that's going to have a negative uh, consequence. We gave this other one as an example last, well, when we talked about this, about how the people, again, rebelling, get lost, God. We want to go back to Egypt. We don't have anything to do with you. And then the Lord is described as sending poisonous snakes. But remember, he protected them. Their shoes didn't wear out. They were protected all the way through their journey, and when he removes his protection, because his choice is either to become puppet master, control the strings, or he gives them freedom. And he gives them freedom, and bad things happen. But he's described as doing it. Well, you would think. Now, Moses, he has this hard time with uh, his, the people. Moses would have people on his side in his family, wouldn't he? Aaron and Miriam. This is the very next chapter. This is very disturbing. After all this stuff is happening... And Moses doesn't even have his own family on his side. Moses had married a Cushite woman. And Miriam and Aaron criticized him for it. They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? The Lord heard what they said. Now here we have the famous words. Moses was a humble man, more humble than anyone else on earth. And uh, anyway, interesting who wrote this book. But suddenly the Lord came to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam and said, I want the three of you to come out of the tent of my presence. How would you feel here? You've just criticized Moses and God says, why don't you, the three of you come on out here? So they went and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, stood at the entrance of the tent and called out, Aaron, Miriam, the two of them stepped forward. And the Lord said, his response, listen carefully to what I'm telling you. If there is a prophet of God among you, I make myself known to him in visions. That's the ideal, right? To be a prophet. No, it's not the ideal. I speak to him in dreams, but I don't do it that way with my servant Moses. He has the run of my entire house. I speak to him intimately, in person, in plain talk, without riddles. 
he ponders the very form, the very character of God. So why did you show no reverence or respect in speaking against my servant, against Moses? Quite a compliment there when you consider just the previous chapter. What did God say? Why, what did Moses say? Why do you treat me so cruelly? Why don't you just kill me? And here God is defending Moses in this uh, family feud. Okay, so they go out. The 12 spies are sent out. And of course, the report comes back in Numbers 13. But the people who live there are powerful and their cities are very large and well fortified. Even worse, we saw the descendants of giants there. Now, remember Caleb and Joshua, two of the spies, um, felt uh, that they should go in. Caleb silenced the people who were complaining against Moses and said, we should attack now and take the land. We are strong enough to conquer it. But the people were not persuaded. All night long, the people cried out in distress. They complained against Moses and Aaron and said, it would have been better to die in Egypt or even here in the wilderness. These words are repeated so many times. Why is the Lord taking us into that land? We will be killed in battle and our wives and children will be captured. Wouldn't it be better to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, here's what I find interesting. I want to spend a little time on uh, God's response. I mean, these are confirmed rebels. They want nothing to do with God. Then Moses and Aaron bowed to the ground in front of all the people, and Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies, tore their clothes in sorrow and said to the people, the land we explored is an excellent land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will take us there and give us that rich and fertile land. Do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people who live there. We will conquer them easily. The Lord is with us and has defeated the gods who protected them. So don't be afraid. The whole community was threatening to stone them to death. But suddenly the people saw the dazzling light of the Lord's presence appear over the tent. The Lord said to Moses, how much longer will these people reject me? How much longer will they refuse to trust me? Isn't that what God wants all along? Trust, trust, miracles. Do you trust me now? How much longer will they refuse to trust me even though I have performed so many miracles among them? And what I find so interesting here about miracles, you just go all the way through the Bible, what do we usually associate with miracles? If we had more faith, we'd see a lot more miracles, a lot more healing. Uh, but what you find in the Bible going through the Old Testament is that the most miracles are concentrated in the times of least faith, which is uh, quite remarkable. Let's give a few examples. You remember uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal called down fire from heaven. Remember, uh, Elijah felt like, you know, I'm the only one you have left, God. And fire comes down, destroys the altar, and all the people are down on their knees. The God, Lord, you are God. And then you expect to read on the next few chapters about a great revival. All these people, now they must follow the true God. Must, a lot of good things must have happened right after this. But remember, uh, Elijah runs off to the mountain being chased by Jezebel, and he feels like he's the only one that God has left. Big miracle, big show, no revival. And then you remember, Elijah goes up, this kind of looks like a wheelchair unless you see here the, uh, the horses. But um, anyway, he, he goes up in the chariots of fire and uh, the people saw this because do you remember Elisha uh, was teased by the youths and um, they said, hey, you go up too, Baldy, you go up too. So they were aware here of what happened, the miraculous translation of Elijah and they're so unimpressed that they say to his successor, hey, Baldy, why don't you go up too? Okay, now that 
big miracle, no, no show, and then of course we have she-bears that come out and uh, chase those youths around a little bit. What was the crowning miracle of Jesus? Wasn't it the resurrection of Lazarus? Four days in the tomb, roll away the tomb or the uh, stone, and he stinks. So he was really dead. And you would expect, you know, if you'd just seen someone four days in the tomb, now there's going to be a big revival, big miracle. People should be impressed. But notice, from that day on, the Jewish authorities made plans to kill Jesus. Forget about the miracle. And even though he'd performed all these miracles in their presence, they did not believe in him. So the miracles frequently, I think, are used by God as like a desperation measure. There's no trust. I mean, these people don't acknowledge me. And the miracles uh, oftentimes are meant to reach people who are very far away from God. But what frequently happens is if we have in our mind a certain picture of God and we're settled in on that picture of God, then even the miracles can't move us away from that. What's especially dangerous, though, is if miracles come that are in harmony with the way we are thinking about God, now we're very impressed. And as examples of that, Satan. The wicked one will come with the power of Satan and perform all kinds of false miracles and wonders. But now it's very successful and use every kind of wicked deceit on those who will perish. They will perish because they did not welcome and love the truth so as to be saved. What truth? You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. I think the truth, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is a perfect reflection of who God is. That's the ultimate truth that we come into, a knowledge of God's character. And then in the book of Revelation, the second beast performed great miracles, made fire come down out of heaven to earth in the sight of everyone, and it deceived all the people living on earth by means of the miracles. Okay, so we have to be very, very careful what we're wishing for when we hope for uh, miracles. And God's miracles never seem to stimulate much of a revival, surprisingly. So anyway, we, we read this verse before. The people rebelled, and God declares of them, they don't trust me. But now what was God's response to all of this? Notice, the Lord answered, I will forgive them. These people who are rebels don't trust God. They're about to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. They're all going to die off except for Caleb and Joshua. And God says, I will forgive them as you've asked. But I promise that as surely as I live and as surely as my presence fills the earth, none of these people, none of these forgiven people will live to enter that land. They've seen the dazzling light of my presence and the miracles that I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness. But they've tried my patience over and over again and have refused to obey me. They will never enter the land which I promised to their ancestors. None of those who have rejected me will ever enter into it, those forgiven people. I find this remarkable in that, what does God do? He forgives these people. And depending on our model of things, isn't that all that's necessary. I mean, if we're forgiven, everything's good, right? But here are these people, I mean, you know, the questions I had, were they forgiven? Yeah, God said himself, they're forgiven. How many of these people entered the promised land? Only two. How many will arrive in heaven? Forgiven people? Well, that's an interesting question. And wouldn't the fact that they were forgiven under a certain model suggest their legal standing is good and all is good? I think this and many other stories challenges our idea somewhat of what forgiveness really is. Let me just read a couple verses here. I think the problem here is when we sin, what happens? There is a condemnation, a self 
condemnation, a separation from God. Our picture of God changes when we rebel and distrust and sin. And these words in Isaiah 59, there's nothing wrong with God, the wrong is in you. Your wrong-headed lives caused the split between you and God. Your sins got between you so that he doesn't hear. Of course he does hear, but there's a separation. There's a condemnation that's occurred within us. And in 1 John 3, if our conscience condemns us, we know that God is greater than our conscience and he knows everything. When we sin, when we separate ourselves from God, our conscience condemns us. And what I want to go through in a few slides is God's way of reaching through our own self-condemnation as we separate from him. In Psalm 86, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. What does that mean? And abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. And as I understand the meaning of this word here in Hebrew, to forgive is something that really occurs within the person who is sinning. It's the removal of our sense of guilt and condemnation produced by our sin. See, the idea we frequently have is that when we sin, that God's love, his attitude for us, it's like a dimmer switch. It goes down a little bit. God changes because of our sin. And uh, it's dangerous because then, you know, the feeling is, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little better tomorrow. Maybe I'll get up and read my Bible for 30 minutes. God will be a little pleased. The dimmer switch will go back up. And then I'll talk with God. Now, what is really going on, God doesn't change at all. His love, his attitude towards you and I doesn't change based on our behavior. What God wants to do is to remove the self-condemnation and the things that have separated us from him. So in Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon Now, there's a word that has a lot of uh, implications with it, but it's the same word. I chose this version because it did choose the word pardon. But the meaning, again, is changing in us, healing that occurs within us. That's what God wants to do. So, again, another version of the same verse. Let the wicked abandon their way of life and the evil their way of thinking. Let them come back to God who's merciful. Come back to our God who is lavish with forgiveness. And because we've got a late start, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip through a few of these verses I'd like to go through, but uh, maybe just to tell a story here as an example of this. I've had to find a Mazda 626 online, but when I was 18, I totaled my parents' car, and it was complete negligence on my own part, and I won't tell the whole story, but anyway, I remember walking out of the ditch and walking a long ways to a house and uh, made a phone call, very nervous, you know, how are your parents going to respond, and I just remember just couldn't even get two sentences out. My dad said, are you okay? Then that's all that matters. And so, wow. It's like, that's, you know, it's forgiveness in a way, but it came from him to me and totally alleviated my own uh, sense of uh, incredible guilt at what I'd done. Prodigal son, another good example. God doesn't just, in the situation, go around telling us, I forgive you, I forgive you. Prodigal son, he did all these bad things wasted all the money, ends up in a pig pen. Where was the father? Shouldn't he be chasing around telling him, you know, I forgive you? No, he let him spend his time in a pig pen, eating the same food that the pigs ate. And here we see another way that God reaches people. So he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him out to his farm to take care of the pigs. He wished he could fill himself with the bean pods the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything to eat. 
At last he came to his senses and said, all my father's hired workers have more than they can eat and here I am about to starve. I'll get up and go to my father. Now notice, did he go back for the right motives? He found out his dad was such a wonderful person he decided to go home. No, he just said the food's better at home, right? So he's going back home. But notice, what is he planning on doing? He's working on a speech of repentance so that maybe his dad will forgive him. Father, I've sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. Okay, here's the speech. So he got up and started back to his father. And here's the key thing. He was still a long way from home when his father saw him. His heart was filled with pity and he ran, threw his arms around his son and kissed him. Father allowed him to experience all this and the son is coming back. Okay, now he's going to get to give his speech so that his father will forgive him. And remember, he's got to remember each and every single bad thing he did while he was gone. He's got to get forgiveness for all 962 transgressions so that then his father will accept him. And so he starts out, Father, I've sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. And the father essentially says, uh, shut up. We're going to have a party, right? So the father said, hurry, bring the best robe, stop talking, you're home. That's all that matters. Okay, so it's the same. He doesn't let him even finish his speech. So this is God's attitude to us when we separate from him. And I think ultimately here, Jesus Christ I mean, the people he forgave on the cross, Father, forgive them. Um, people torturing him to death, did they ask to be forgiven? No, the forgiveness was just extended. Remember, the Father has exactly the same attitude as Jesus. They're no different. So the Father forgave them as well. Forgiven people. So we're forgiven. The question is, will we respond to it? I think this is what Romans 2.4 is talking about. Or perhaps you despise his great kindness, tolerance, and patience. Surely you know that God is kind, forgiving, because he's trying to lead you to repent. So God offers forgiveness. It's meant to stimulate love and trust for God, that we respond to that and we come back to God. The question is, do we respond to that kind of a God? Well, coming now to the last uh, difficult story. We'll conclude with this one today. Korah's Rebellion. This is one of the worst stories in the Old Testament. And... Um, take a risk here in going through this too quickly, but I want to just kind of grapple with this. We don't skip over these difficult stories and try to understand why things happened in this way. We, we just have to read the verses and you come up to your own conclusion. Korah from the Levite clan of Kohath rebelled against the leadership of Moses. He was joined by three members of the tribe of Reuben, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and uh, 250 other Israelites. So this is a pretty large, significant people um, high-placed individuals that were involved in this rebellion, well-known leaders chosen by the community. They assembled before Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far. All the members of the community belong to the Lord and the Lord is with all of us. Why then, Moses, do you set yourself above the Lord's community? And these power struggles, I mean, no one likes that Moses is in charge, right? I mean, we just read he's the humblest guy and everyone is trying to, even in his own family, to knock him down. When Moses heard this, he threw himself on the ground and prayed. Then he said to Korah and his followers, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show us who belongs to him. He will let the one who belongs to him, that is the one he has chosen, approach him at the altar. Tomorrow morning you and your followers take fire pans, put live coals and incense on them, and take them to the altar. Then we will see which of us the Lord has chosen. You Levites are the one who've gone too far. 
Moses continued to speak to Korah, listen, you Levites, do you consider it a small matter that the God of Israel has set you apart from the rest of the community so that you can approach him, perform your service in the Lord's tent and minister to the community and serve them? He has led you and all the other Levites uh, let you have this honor. And now you're trying to get the priesthood too? When you complain against Aaron, it is really against the Lord that you and your followers are rebelling. Then Moses sent for Dathan and Abiram, but they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you've brought us out of the fertile land of Egypt to kill us here in the wilderness? Do you also have to lord it over us? You certainly have not brought us into a fertile land or given us fields and vineyards as our possession. And now you're trying to deceive us. We will not come. Moses became angry and said to the Lord, do not accept any offerings these men bring. I've not wronged any of them. I've not even taken one of their donkeys. Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow, you and your 250 followers, and I think this is uh, significant here, bring the 250 followers, must come to the tent of the Lord's presence. Aaron will also be there. Each of you will take his fire pan, put incense on it, and then present it at the altar. Okay, so this is what's supposed to happen. So they each took their fire pans, put live coals and incense on them, and stood at the entrance of the tent with Moses and Aaron. And notice, then Korah gathered the whole community and they stood facing Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the temple. Now, wouldn't this be significant that the leader of the rebellion doesn't just come with the 250, he gathers the whole community. Wouldn't that suggest that the whole community is really behind this rebellion? I mean, just look at the, this is like the flood, right? I mean, these are God's people on earth and here he's got one man and the whole community of God's people are against Moses. I mean, this is a, another very uh, desperate kind of a situation for God to deal with. So I bring the whole community. They stood facing Moses. Suddenly, the dazzling light of the Lord's presence appeared to the whole community. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, move back from these people and I will destroy them immediately. But Moses and Aaron bowed down their faces to the ground and said, oh God, you are the source of all life. Which one of us sins? Do you become angry with the whole community? The Lord said to Moses, tell the people to move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And then Moses, accompanied by the leaders of Israel, went to Dathan and Abiram. He said to the people, get away from the tents of these wicked men and don't touch anything that belongs to them. Otherwise, you will be wiped out with them for all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing at the entrance of their tents with their wives and children. Moses said to the people, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it is not by my own choice that I've done them. If these men die a natural death without some punishment from God, then the Lord did not send me. But if the Lord does something unheard of and the earth opens up and swallows them with all they own so that they go down alive to the world of the dead, you will know that these men have rejected the Lord. I mean, is this a tough spot for God? Everyone's against him and the whole community and um, his uh, self-proclaimed friend right here says, you know what, if the earth doesn't open up, then God really hasn't sent me. So what, what's going to happen? Well, as soon as he'd finished speaking, the ground under Dathan and Abiram split open and swallowed them and their families together with all of Korah's followers and their possessions. So they went down alive to the world of the dead with their possessions. The earth closed over them and they vanished. All the people of Israel who were there fled. When they heard their cry, they shouted, run, the earth might swallow us too. 
Then the Lord sent a fire that blazed out and burned up the 250 men who'd presented the incense. Um, I mean, what, a, what an awful thing that happened here. But the question is, I mean, let's just say we're in a large group here. Maybe we're arguing about the mechanism of the atonement or something like that. And half the group is swallowed up. The earth opens up. And um, I mean, wouldn't you think, man, for the whole community, uh, that would be pretty impressive, right? Maybe we'd all uh, change our minds a little bit or at least we'd be quiet about it if we had a differing opinion, right? <laughs> How do you think the people responded? The community, the earth opens up. We have this fire killing 250 men. Uh, do you know how the community responded the very next day? Big miracle, right? We expect a big turnaround. Show of force. And this is what I find just amazing. You just read on. The next day, the whole community complained against Moses and Aaron and said, you have killed some of the Lord's people. Is that not remarkable? So I think, again, in our mind, we pluck out this horrible story and we just imagine God arbitrarily don't like those people, earth opens up, they're gone, right? But um, I think it's just like, um, you know, when you uh, get into your clinical years, uh, you'll see some awful things in the hospital. Um, I always remember a man at the county hospital who had diabetes and was a heroin abuser and was using, it was shooting up in the legs and he kept coming in for leg infections over and over again. And finally he had just a really bad one. And I mean, antibiotics, I mean, he had the best treatment that finally his leg had to be amputated very high up. Now, would it be a fair statement to uh, walk by that hospital and warn people and say, hey, the doctors in that hospital cut legs off. Did you hear? That wouldn't be a fair characterization. Um, or uh, I might have told this story, I don't remember, but um, you know, if your three-year-old is upstairs and crawling out the window and there's concrete below and you're out in the garden and you see him and you shout, and he just is annoyed that you're bothering his plane as he kind of goes up for a bird's nest. Um, would you even threaten, I mean, would you shout anything necessary to go back inside the house? And you take the risk of being misunderstood. If someone's walking by, they look over the hedge and they think, man, that's the meanest parent I've ever seen, right? So it is the circumstance uh, that determines some of these things. And what we'll notice is every time God intervenes in a way like this, it's never positive in the short term. It's always negative. Remember the flood? What happens next? Tower of Babel, because everyone's afraid of God. Okay, so it never works in the short term. But God has to somehow preserve a connection with planet Earth because he hasn't come yet, right? He hasn't come. He hasn't really revealed what he's like in character. So it's, it's an incredible risk that God takes. And I'll probably quote this every other book of the Bible here as we go through it. But these words in Hosea 4.16, the people of Israel are as stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? And God, you know, the book of Hosea here is, is quite telling because remember what Hosea had to do. Marry a woman who had become a prostitute. And then what did he have to do? He had to go find her in her work as a prostitute, had to pay for her. And do you think any of the brethren as they watched Hosea do this uh, were a little concerned about Hosea. What's he doing in that part of town? Why, what's he doing with money, you know, trying to, to buy a prostitute? And so God, I mean, we could be thankful that he just didn't decide, you know what, I'm not going to bother with these people. It's going to ruin my reputation. God is just like that lover out searching for his wife who's become a prostitute and takes a great risk, I think, in ruining his reputation in the process. But that's why Jesus Christ is everything. He's our answer for what kind of person God is.
Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you have taken the risk, great risk, and you have been misunderstood. But we ask that to us it would be clear that somehow your life, your death, who you revealed yourself to be in Jesus Christ, that that may become the center of our understanding about you, and that all of these very, very difficult stories, that somehow we may see you in the correct light, in the larger picture of what you're trying to accomplish, and that we may come closer to you as a friend. Amen.